morning to everyone and welcome to The Well here at STSA. Thank you for joining us on this, what started as a rainy Sunday, but I just looked outside and apparently the sun has come out, which is a nice little surprise for us. Yes, exactly. See what happens when you come to church, good things happen outside, all right? Hopefully it translates to that World Series game tonight, but we'll, uh, we'll just kind of stick with our topic here for right now. We're in week two of a series called Blind Faith, and what we're doing here in this series is we are looking at a topic, a subject that many of us in Christianity kind of take for granted. We're talking about faith, and we're trying to define maybe something you've never done before in life is what is faith? Where does it come from? What does it look like? How do I get more of it? Why do some people seem to have it, and other people like myself, you know, it seems like just don't. Like, is it like a genetic thing? Are some people just born with it and other people aren't? Is faith truly blind? Or does faith, is it a better story than that? Is there more to the story than faith? Some people just got it, other people don't. Sometimes you go to someone, you talk about faith, and they say, you know what, Father Anthony, after what I've seen in life, it's hard for me to believe. After what I've seen in life, after what I've gone through in life, it's hard for me to have faith. You know what? Think about it. Everyone in your mind right now, think of someone. There's got to be at least someone in your life. Think of that one person, either current or former. Maybe it was like a grandma or it was like a teacher or an old priest, or maybe it's your current priest. Like whatever it is, it may be. Think of that one person who exemplifies faith to you. That one person who you look at them and you're like, that person, that person lives a life of faith. Think of that person right now. That person who in your mind right now, who you can taste their faith, you can like feel their faith when you walk in their house. That person live an easy life? That person live a problem-free life? Like, is that the person that has a big, huge house? You know, husband buys him flowers every day. You know, wife, you know, waiting at the door with the robe and the slippers when we come home from work. Like, usually these, these are not the people that you find with the strongest faith. Like it's not the kids, it's not the parents who have the kids who are the valedictorians or the voted most likely to next become a priest. These aren't the ones who usually have the strong faith. Who's usually got the strong faith? You can see people who've gone through problems, people who have faced tragedies, people who have serious illnesses, people who have serious relationship problems that they've been praying for and struggling for and just can't seem to fix. But they have faith. They have something. They have something that when you talk to them about it, you're like, you have something. Like, I don't know what you got, but I want it. Whatever it is, I don't want the circumstances that led you to find it, but I want what you got. And deep inside, there's a little piece of us that wonders, if I went through a circumstance like that, would I have faith? Would I believe? There's a verse in, in the Psalms, one of my favorite verses. It says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. It's in Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like a mountain, which cannot be shaken, but endures forever. That's the kind of faith I want. I want the faith that no matter what hits it, like you can run into a mountain, mountain's not gonna move. Okay, wind, not gonna knock down a mountain, rain, nothing's gonna, I want the kind of faith that whether it's job or illness or, 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 or tragedy, the kind of faith that's rock solid, unshakable. And sometimes those trust in the Lord like Mount Zion. Sometimes I feel like my faith isn't like a mountain. My faith more like a leaf, okay? Where somebody sneezes and the whole thing kind of falls apart. <clears throat> There's a, uh, my microphone go off? Can you? There's a, uh, someone you may have heard me speak about before, um, a man named Francis Collins. Anyone heard of Francis Collins? Okay, some of you may have heard of him. Okay, he is the director 
of the NIH. He's a very smart guy, okay? And he is, uh, like the NIH is like a, a big deal, okay? It's like a presidentially appointed position, Senate confirms. Francis Collins, one of the smartest guys. Francis Collins walks into a room. He's the smartest guy in that room, whichever room he walks into. He's heading up something called the Human Genome Project, which I had tried my best to try to understand what it is so I could at least give you a little explanation. But just trust me, it's something very complicated. It's trying to map out the, all the, the different parts of a, a DNA with like the 3.1 billion letters or whatever it may be. Yeah, he's the guy who kind of in charge of that, that small little project compared to what you do at work. But Francis Collins, like many in the science field, originally rejected Christianity, not because he didn't believe, but because Christianity is like the faith of simpletons. That he saw Christianity as something as like, yeah, if you're like, that's something like for the uneducated maybe, or like if you're from the South, okay, like you, you're, like, you're, you're that, or if you grew up that way, like more power to you, but it's like a cultural thing. But someone at his level of academic and intellectual, it's, it's not for me. Until one day when he was 27 years old and he was doing rounds at a hospital in North Carolina. He writes about this, by the way, in his book, The Language of God. I highly recommend this book if you, uh, if you like science and God, where's the intersection of faith and science called The Language of God. He's 27 years old. He's in a hospital in North Carolina. He's doing his rounds, seeing all the different patients. And because he's in North Carolina, Bible Belt, okay, he would oftentimes walk into a patient's room, you know, and how are you and how are you? And oftentimes they would speak about faith. They would say things like, thank God, or I'm trusting God. Or he would say, like, how are you doing with the pain? And they'd say, you know, God is, and they would say all these things about God. And again, he just kind of took it one ear and out the other, but he was struggling to understand. Like he was kind of confused. How could somebody in so much pain and suffering, like he kind of felt bad for them, felt bad for them that they're holding on to this God thing, but clearly God is not with them. Like they're in horrible pain and suffering. So he didn't get it. He couldn't wrap his mind around it. And this is what he wrote in the book, The Language of God. Okay, this is his internal struggle during this time. He says, if faith was a psychological crutch, I concluded it must be a very powerful one. If it was nothing more than a veneer of cultural tradition, what that means is basically saying like, if it's nothing more than because you are, uh, because you grew up in this household, because your parents are from here, or because you got nothing better, because you're not smart enough, the guy said, because you're from the South, or something like that. If that's all it is, why were these people not shaking their fists at God and demanding that their friends and family stop all this talk about a loving and benevolent supernatural power? He asked a good question. He was saying these people who have faith they're smiling, even though they're suffering. And they talk about a future hope. And they say like, I'm gonna see my family and friends again. See, how could this be? If it was just a crutch, if it was just something made up, it was just something. And then one day, as he's going through this kind of intellectual debate, turning point, he meets one particular lady. And this particular lady, he had seen her for a course of many days, maybe weeks, whatever it was, I don't remember exactly. And she had often talked to him about her faith. And he listened. And then one day, she asked him a question, a question that changed his life. She told him, I believe this, and I believe this, I believe this. And then she asked him, what do you believe? And this was a, this was a game changer. Because for the first time in his life, Francis Collins, smartest guy in every room that he ever, enter, ever enters into, had no answer. 
He didn't have an answer to the question. What do you, he didn't know what he believed. Here was a doctor who held her life in her hands. This is the guy with the degrees and the diplomas. Like I said, head of the Human Genome Project of the NIH. The smartest guy. He walks in a room, he's the smartest guy. And here's this lady, and my life, if I'm the lady, is in the hands of this doctor. And I asked the doctor a simple question, what do you believe? And his answer was, I'm not really sure. And this didn't settle well with him because he's an intellectual guy. And as an intellectual, he's a scientist. Scientists make conclusions how? They study data, they ask questions, they come up with logical conclusions. Well, what he realized is that he didn't go through that process for this. He said, quote from the book, he said, I found myself during this time, I found myself with a combination of arrogance and willful blindness. And I love the expression willful blindness. You know what willful blindness means? It means I don't see anything because I'm not really looking. I don't know the answer because I'm not really asking the question in all honesty. And there began a journey for him, which I won't tell you his whole story. But anyway, the, the bottom, the, the conclusion of the story is he asked some questions. He realized there's a lot more evidence than he had realized for this Christianity thing. And he ended up doing the only natural conclusion. He became a Christian and a follower, a devoted follower of Christ, who's written many books. You can find him on YouTube, given many talks. And he discovered what we are hopefully discovering in this series is that faith is not just you got to believe. Faith is not just a blind faith, that you believe, you don't ask questions because it's bad, and you don't want to get yourself into problems and doubting is bad. No, 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 no. That kind of believe just for the sake of believing, Jesus never said that. The apostles never said that. The guys who died for the faith never said, just believe because you got to believe, and you got to believe, and don't question, you just got to believe. They would tell you that I believed, not because someone told me to believe, they'll say, I believe because I saw something, I heard something. I witnessed something. Faith is much better than blind. This is the verse that we looked at last week from 1 John chapter 1. This is, this is the closest disciple to Jesus, the beloved disciple, John, at the end of his life. And he's recounting his story. And he wrote a gospel. He wrote three epistles. He wrote the book of Revelation. And he's writing near the end of his life. And he's saying, you want to know why I believe? Well, let me tell you this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. You know what John is saying right here? John's saying, look here, look here, look here. I'm a simple man. Don't ask me funny questions. I'm a simple man. I'm a fisherman, okay? I grew up worshiping the God of Israel and I was fully devoted to him, and I believe there is one God. So I know what I'm about to say kind of sounds strange, but I'll tell you what I've seen and what I heard, and don't ask me any funny questions. Don't ask me about evolution. Don't ask me about creation. Don't ask me about, don't ask me about that stuff. Let me tell you what I've seen. Let me tell you what I heard. Let me tell you what I witnessed. Life was manifested. Life I'm a good, he was, John was a good Jewish boy. Grew up believing in the God of Moses, God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob. Believed in that. He says, I know this sounds strange, but life, the creator, the origin of life, the maker of all things seen and unseen, life took flesh. I don't understand it either. I know it's incredible, but I know what I saw. I know what I heard. And I know what I witnessed. That life became a man, was born of a virgin, lived amongst us, did many miracles said stuff that you wouldn't believe, did stuff that we still can't imagine how he did it. 
but life, the real deal. He is the real deal. He is life. He took flesh. And that's why I'm writing this to you because I realized that you didn't get a chance to witness it with your own eyes. But this is what we talked about last week. This is how we come to faith. Faith in every other subject of life. Okay, leave religion aside for a second. Faith goes this way. There's experience, which leads to faith, which leads to my faith, to my experience. Somebody discovers something. Somebody discovers gravity. And then they believe. And then they tell you, your teacher told you there's a thing called gravity. You didn't go out and test it. You believed. And then therefore, eventually, you experienced it. Let me say that, break that down another way. Talking about John specifically. John, his experience led to his faith. Good so far. His experience led to his faith. His faith leads to my faith because I trust him just like I trusted my teacher when she said that four times four is 16. I didn't get out the M&Ms and start counting. I trusted her. When my driver teacher told me, push this one to stop, push this one to go, I trusted him. I didn't need to test it. I took his word as, and I believe. His faith leads to my faith and then my faith leads to my experience. Christianity as I said last week, is less religion. And Christianity, you know what it honestly is? It's more history. It's not really religion. Religion, most religions happen as follows. Most religions have a book. And you write a book, and then I say, these are the rules of the religion. And sometimes we think that's the way Christianity is, but that is not the way Christianity is. Christianity didn't come from a book. Christianity came way before a book. Christianity came from a person. Christianity is not people who sat down and write a book and say, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what you gotta do. This is what you gotta follow. That's not Christianity. That's other religions. That's other, my ideas and I write it down. Hey, do this. That's not Christianity. Christianity is a person who lived, who walked, who breathed, who took flesh, who did signs. And then the people believed in him. And then eventually with time, John, I told you, wrote his, his, his gospel and his epistles in the 90s, okay? Not the 1990s, like the 90s, just the zero 90s, like the 90s. Okay, and he wrote it, and that's, he was the last of the apostles. They were all gone by then. So what he said is, I'm gonna write this down because I realize there's gonna come a generation after me. And, and right now we say even, you know, many generations after him that didn't see what I saw, that didn't experience what I experienced. So I'm gonna write it down. Not as religion, not as rules, but as history, as what I seen and what I heard and what I witnessed. And I do that so that you can experience what I experienced as well. This is our theme verse. First John, I'm sorry, John chapter, this is the gospel of John now, chapter 20, the very end of his gospel. John gives like, this is the reason why I wrote this. This is the reason why you're reading this right now. Truly, Jesus did many other signs, not miracles, signs. We talk about that in a second. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Jesus did signs. He says, Jesus did many, 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 many things. I don't got time or space. There ain't enough paper on the planet to write down everything that Jesus did. But I documented these that you would believe and believing you would have life, you would have experience. So what we're doing in this series is we are going through the seven signs of the gospel of John. John organized his gospel around seven signs, not miracles. The difference between a sign and a miracle, sometimes we look at the miracles of Jesus and we say, Jesus did a miracle, Jesus did a miracle, and we make it like a random act of kindness. Oh, here's a blind person. Okay, let's heal him. Okay, here's a dead person. Okay, let's raise him. We make it random acts of kindness, or Jesus just wants to show how cool he is. But the problem is, if you look at it that way, he ran into a blind person, he healed him. Then he ran into another blind person, didn't heal him. 
like, why he here, not here? Like, he raised this dead person, but he didn't raise that dead person. So then is it just, like, random? Jesus have favorites? Or is it not about the miracle? It's about the sign. A sign is something that points to something. And Jesus had a plan to show who he was, his identity. And John says, we know he is who he says he is because he did these signs. The first sign we looked at last week came from John chapter two, the second chapter of John's gospel, which was the wedding of Cana of Galilee, where Jesus went to a wedding, normal wedding, average ordinary everyday wedding. And then something happened. They ran out of wine. Jesus' mother came to him and said, they ran out of wine. We need you to do something. And then Jesus said to her that strange statement, which would sounded rude, but we saw it's not really rude. It's actually formal, but it's not rude. He said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? It's not my time. But then Jesus ended up saying, I'm coming not to just do miracles. I'm not just coming to save weddings. I'm coming to save the world. So I wasn't coming to do a miracle, just a random miracle, but I did a sign. And his disciples saw and they believed. Jesus left that wedding. And after that, he went from Galilee. Okay, Galilee, Cain of Galilee. Think of it, I should have brought a map, sorry. It's up at the top, okay? And he went down to Jerusalem. Okay, we see about this after the, the wedding of Cain of Galilee. It says he went to Jerusalem. That's the end of John chapter two. And whenever Jesus would go to Jerusalem, drama always followed. Like Jesus never had just like a peaceful visit to Jerusalem. There was always trouble, the Pharisees. Okay, and this particular one was probably the most eventful one until the final one where he walks in, goes straight to the temple, does not like what he sees, and he causes a big scene. And you're sure the apostles are just like, oh my goodness, we are going to die right here. We're going to get lynched. He's flipping tables. He's screaming at the money changers. He's causing a big ruckus. And they come to him and they say, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? And he responds to them. And he says, this is my father's house. You don't make it like this. And at the end of that, John writes this in John chapter two, verse 23. So now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Why? Why did they? This is all of the formula. They believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. He didn't just say, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. You gotta have faith. You gotta believe. You gotta trust what's wrong with you. Why is your faith so weak? He did signs. They believed. That was in John chapter two. John chapter three, after this, he has this famous conversation with Nicodemus and it takes place at night. Why? Because Nicodemus doesn't want to really be seen with, because Nicodemus was uh, uh, like a, a Pharisee guy, a royal guy or a, a official guy. So he didn't want to be seen with Jesus. So he goes to him at night and they have this conversation about born again, born of water and spirit. God so loved the world. That's that famous passage. After that conversation takes place, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and he goes back up to Galilee. But John chapter four, we know the story. On his way to Galilee, it says that he has to pass through Samaria, okay, which is like kind of sort of, you know, making a left instead of a straight route. It says he needed to pass through Samaria in John chapter four. Why he needed to pass through Samaria? Because the Samaritan woman. Again, why her, not everybody else? Wasn't just random. There was a plan and he had a purpose. He goes to her and he has this discussion with her. She believes, okay, she has this experience. She believes. She goes to her town and tells them, Come see a man who taught me everything. And they take her word and then they come and then they have their own experience. John documents it this way in John chapter four, starting verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city and said to the men, come see a man who told me all things I ever did. She believed and then she goes to them. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and came to him. Verse 41. And many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him and know that this is indeed the Christ, the savior of the world. See how it goes? The woman had an experience. She went and told them, trust me, this is incredible. I believe this and I'm telling you, you should trust me. 
They said, we haven't experienced anything, but we'll take your word and we will go to him. Then they had their own experience and they said, we don't need the lady anymore. We believe, not just because we believe, we believe, we believe, we believe, but because we saw and we experienced. And then Jesus finishes with her and makes it back to Galilee. And that's where our story picks up at the end of John chapter four. We're gonna start in verse 46. This is the second sign we're gonna read about now. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee. Okay, we read about this in John chapter two. Okay, then like I said, he went to Jerusalem and now he's back. Jesus came again to wedding a Cana of Gal- or came to Cana-, Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. Two things. Capernaum is a city that's roughly 25 miles away from Galilee. It's 25 miles, okay, would take you roughly, okay, depending on the terrain or whatever it may be, Let's say you walk at three miles an hour, something like that. It'll take you about eight hours. He was a nobleman, second important fact. So because he was a nobleman, okay, or an aristocrat, or some translations say a royal official, since he was part of King Herod's court, he probably didn't walk it. Okay, he probably took it in like a horse or like a chariot or whatever it may be. So let's say that's three hours. Okay, so it's an eight-hour walk or a three-hour horse ride, something like that. The point is, it's quite a distance. He was a nobleman. A a nobleman means that he was most likely, we don't know for sure, he was most likely a member of the Sadducees. You see this phrase oftentimes in the New Testament, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We kind of lump them together, the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Pharisees and Sadducees actually were very different from one another. They kind of were united together because they had a common enemy in in Christianity, especially in like the book of Acts. They were united together against Christians, but really... Like they were kind of two political parties, so to speak. And they couldn't have been more opposite in some areas. The Pharisees, the ones that we're more familiar with, these were the meticulous keepers of the law. These are the ones who were very religious and they believed in God and they believed in the afterlife. And they believed, this is the important part, that God was involved in the details of life. That's why they were so focused on the law. Because if you missed one letter of the law, God would smite you down. But God was in the details, according to the Pharisees. The Sadducees were a different party. They were the more intellectual. They were the more sophisticated. They were the more high class. These were the ones who didn't believe in the afterlife necessarily. And these are the guys who never asked God for anything. You know why? Because they believed in fate. They didn't believe in afterlife. They didn't believe in reward. They didn't believe in that stuff. They believed in fate. They believe what's gonna happen is gonna happen. So if you're sick, it's fate. If you're high class, that's fate as well. Like whatever it is your situation in life, that's kind of determined, predetermined for you by this thing called fate. So if you're a Sadducee, you don't see much need for asking God or praying or you don't see need for these things because everything is pretty much determined. But the nobleman, all of his political beliefs, his religious beliefs, his ideology, his agenda, all of it goes out the window. Why? Because his son was sick. And this ain't no head cold, okay? He got sniffles. His son was sick in a very serious way and all that other stuff goes out the window. Verse 47. This nobleman, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down, heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Here you don't see a noble person. Here you don't see an aristocrat. Here you don't see 
a Sadducee with a certain set of beliefs. Here you see a desperate father who's scared that he's going to lose his son. And he was so desperate that he went to him and implored him. Implored means begged, pleaded, please. He begged him. He implored him. Now, this is very unbecoming of a nobleman of his stature. Very unbecoming. A nobleman. If a nobleman wanted to get, Jesus was not high class. Jesus was low class. Jesus was a carpenter, a peasant. He hung out with fishermen who couldn't even read. If a nobleman wants to speak to a peasant, how does it work? A nobleman doesn't go running and say, please come to me. A nobleman sends a servant to go and say, the master is calling for you. But here, there's no time to waste. There, there, there's, there's no social class right now. All that's out the window. Forget about political, forget about agenda, forget about theology, forget about all that stuff. My son is dying. I ran as fast as I could to get to you and I'm begging you, begging you, you have to come back with me because my son is dying. Like even I think about it. You know what, what risk did the nobleman take here by leaving his son to go find Jesus? Which I told you was an eight hour walk and I told you or two or three hour uh, horse or, or carriage ride. And that's if you knew where Jesus was. But he didn't know where he was. It wasn't like, like, like today with a cell phone, like, you know, send me a pin with where you're at. Like, it wasn't like that. Like, he had to go, and he had to be like a crazy person. Like, has anyone seen Jesus? Anyone heard where Jesus is? Do you know where Jesus is? And they say, you're a nobleman. What do you want? I, I need him. You need him? No, I need him right away. Where is he? I heard he may be over there, and he would go over there. No, do you know what give me? And he's begging and pleading, and people are like, you're a nobleman? And you're walking around like a crazy person for a peasant, for this rabbi? A carpenter who became a preacher and you need him so badly? Totally lost all dignity. Totally lowered himself. What risk did he take by leaving his son? What could have happened by the time he came home? Son could have been dead. He left a dying son in his bed. And I gotta go to Jesus. All is out the window all dignity, all social class. Like if the boys from the country club could see me now, it must've been what the servants were thinking. If the boys from the country club could see how far he's fallen, he's lost his mind. It's funny how suffering and pain changes things, doesn't it? There's an expression. Have you heard of this expression before? There's no atheist in a foxhole. You ever heard that expression before? Foxhole meaning like the trenches where there's war. Okay, when bullets are flying, and bombs are being dropped. There are no atheists in those things. Like atheism is a luxury you have when you're sitting pretty and everything is nice. That's a luxury you have. But when bullets are flying, okay, when sickness is, is calling, when death is knocking at the door, you do not have the luxury of being atheist. And believe me, I've seen people. I've seen strong, dignified people, intellectual, mighty. I don't believe in that God business. I don't believe in that church business. I've seen them in a hospital bed with tubes and wires and they're weak and they say, I need God. And all that other stuff goes out the window. All, that, all, 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 the, all the front that they put up, all, all that stuff goes out the window. And some of us, like let's, let, let's try to make this practical. I'll get back to the story in a second, but let's try to make this practical. Some of us, like we can relate to this, can't we? We can relate to this. And actually many saints of the church can relate to this. Remember, this man came to Jesus. He didn't even believe in Jesus. He didn't believe in it. He hadn't even met him. 
but he heard rumor. There's this rumor about this Jesus guy. No, 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 people of our class, that's for the illiterate. That's for the fishermen. That's the people who can't, like, that's the peasant stuff. No, no, not us. But I heard a rumor. And desperation, desperate times call for desperate measures. And if we're honest, some of us understand that. There have been saints in our church who have prayed, say this, have prayed the to whom it may concern prayer. And maybe you prayed this prayer too, which is, I don't know what I believe, but to whom it may concern, I need help. There have been great saints in the church. St. Moses, the Ethiopian, is the one who comes to mind right off the bat. He didn't know what he believed, but he knew he needed help. Runs to, the, runs to Christ, begs him, pleads him, loses all dignity. What will it take to get you to my son? Jesus responds. Now, before I show you the response, the response, again, just kind of like last week when we talked about when Jesus said woman to his mother, it wasn't rude, it wasn't disrespectful. It sounds that way to us, but you can't take our cultural context and apply it, okay, to 2,000 years ago. What Jesus says next sounds very rude and it sounds insensitive, but I don't think he's being rude or insensitive. I think he's being honest. And I think he's making a statement, not just to that man, but to everyone who was around, because there was always crowds around Jesus, including us today in this series, says this. Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Whoa, (laughs) kind of rough, Jesus. No, not rough, no. You know Jesus isn't being rough because in a minute he's about to do the miracle, okay? He's not, like if, if he was frustrated, like he wouldn't have done it. What Jesus is saying to them is not, is not a, it's a truthful statement. It's exactly the point of this series. What he's saying is, I know I'm saying crazy stuff. I know I'm telling you things that make no sense. And I'm not telling you believe because believe because believe because believe. I'm not saying have faith for the sake of faith. I'm telling you, your faith should not be blind. Your faith that I'm calling you to is not just based on a hunch. It should be based on evidence. And unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And that's why I came to do these signs that you will see that faith is based on evidence and experience, not just on faith. Verse 49, the nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. In any other context, if Jesus said, you people, unless you believe in Nazi signs and wonders, the nobleman would not allow a peasant to speak to him that way. The nobleman's servants would have apprehended him. How dare you? How, how dare you speak to a nobleman, a member of King Herod's court like this? But again, desperate times, desperate measures. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people say. I don't care about the servants, how they're gonna lose respect for me. I don't care about my dignity. I need help. Come down now before my son dies. I'm willing to put myself, I'm a nobleman. I will put myself so far below you. I'll put myself so far below you. And I don't even know you, but I heard about you. Other people believe in you. I haven't experienced it. I haven't seen it, but other people have. And you're all I got. And the nobleman, has two options in his mind. Option one, you come with me, my son lives. Option two, you don't come with me, my son dies. Jesus always has a third option, doesn't he? Jesus always has a third option. You've gone to God, you've done the same thing. 
God, this is option one. You do this or, or I die. Jesus always has a third option. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. Because we know how the story ends, we imagine that's you. Go your way. Your son lives. I want to I put this into what Jesus is saying directly to us, then I'll, we'll unpack this. What Jesus is saying to him, trust me based on the testimony of others. Trust me. Again, there were two options. Option one, you come with me, my son lives. Option two, you don't come with me, my son dies. Jesus says, third option. I will not go with you, but trust me. How would you respond? How would you respond if you rode, ran, begged, pleaded, fought through the crowds just to find him? And he says to you, Go on. Don't worry. Everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. I imagine, because I'm a married man, imagine him going back to his wife who sent him out. Go bring the rabbi back. You don't come back without the rabbi. You go get that rabbi and you come back. You do not come back home without that rabbi. And he comes back home. And she says, what happened? He says, I met this nice man. He's great. He told me everything's going to be fine. If I go back without the rabbi, there may be two funerals that we're planning that week in the family. <laughs> Jesus says to him, don't worry. Go your way. Your son lives. Everything's going to be fine. I'm not coming with you, but trust me. I'm not going to do what you're praying for, but trust me. I'm not going to involve myself like, please, God, give me. Please, God, do this. Please, God, fix this. No, I'm not going to do it. But trust me. But I haven't seen. But trust me based on the testimony of others. The nobleman probably thought in his head, maybe I just grab him and bring him. Like, I got servants. I got entourage. Like, maybe I just grab him. What's great about the Gospels particularly like the life of Jesus, whenever you see Jesus interacting with people. This is a very important point when you read the New Testament. Every interaction with Jesus, our lifetime, everything, like our entire lives, in a moment. Like what Jesus tells this man, trust me based on the testimony of others, begged, pleaded. This is like our entire life. Like our entire life in this one day right here. Because our entire life, is us coming to God with need, desperate, please help, got no hope without you. I've never experienced an answer to my prayers or a miracle, but someone else has, and they told me that if I pray, you'll answer. The guy at church on Sunday, Father Anthony said that we believe in prayer. Like I heard other people talk about it. I never experienced it. And now I come to you and say, I got problems, I need help. I got problems at work. I got a problem with my marriage. I got a problem with my kids. I got a problem with my parents. I got a problem, I need help. And then the response to you is, go your way. Trust me. 
entrust the nobleman, your son, entrust him to my care, even though I'm not going to. Entrust your future to my care. Entrust your health. Entrust your family. Entrust your work. Entrust everything that's precious to you in life to me. And even though you don't see me there, even you don't hear me there, trust me. How would you respond? Would you? Like, would you? I, I, I struggle with this myself. Would you? The man decides to take Jesus at his word. And he makes a decision. A decision that changes the trajectory of his life and his family's life. A decision that he makes right now before there's any evidence. Only right now is rumors. Only right now is stories. He makes a decision to believe based on the testimony of others. Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. He said, you know what? Something about this man. I'm gonna take him at his word. He could be blowing me off and he could be saying, yeah, 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 fine. Don't worry, you're gonna be okay. And he's never gonna see me again. He could be, but I believe him. Others have told me I take his word. And he had to walk away. Think how difficult. He's got Jesus in front of him. And Jesus is the only hope. And he had to walk away. Walk away from the only hope of a solution in his life. And he walked away willingly. That's not easy to do. You go to the doctor's office, say, please see my sick kid. They say, oh, no, he'll be fine. Don't worry. Come back, come back next week if you have a problem. No, sir. I'm seeing the doctor today. No, sir. I'm going to stand here. I'm going to protest, okay? I'm going to put this on Facebook Live. Look, whatever. I, I'm, no, sir. He walked away and he believed. Verse 51. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. He sees the servants coming. He sees this entourage because it's this long distance. And he's walking back and he's like, He's doubting, he's struggling, like, what did I do? Did I do the right thing? I don't know what. And he sees the servants coming. For sure, he imagines the worst. Oh, no. They're coming to give me the worst news ever. But as they get closer, they're not sad. They're not crying. They're excited. And they say, good news, your son lives. And he wants to believe it, but I mean, verse 52, and then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And all of a sudden, the seventh hour means like one o'clock yesterday, chill runs out in his spine. And he's thinking back to that conversation. No way. Could it be when he spoke? No way. Want to believe, but struggle. Sprint all the way home, verse 53. So the father knew that it was the same hour when Jesus said to him, your son lives. And now, oh my goodness, there's no way. It is, but it can't be. What he said, I can't understand this. So now all of a sudden, forget about the rest of the entourage. The man runs home as fast as he can, takes the fastest horse, forget about the rest of them. And he hurries home to his wife. His wife meets him at the door. She's crying, but they're not tears of sadness. They're tears of joy. And he walks in and says, what's going on? And then she tells him the story. She tells him, you won't believe this. And the boy and the fever, and he's doing better. And this, and this. And the whole time she's talking, he's not listening. He's not listening. His mind is on one thing. That rabbi, that rabbi from yesterday told me all these words. And then his wife says to him, oh yeah, what happened with that rabbi? 
Did you ever find Jesus? What did he say to you? Then he tells her the story. This is the conversation we had. And he said, go your way, your son lives. And he himself believed. Yeah, no duh. <laughs> That's a no-brainer. And he himself believed in his whole household. The easiest time to believe, like this is, is this because he had great faith? He had faith. Oh, wow, he, he must have been born with the gene of faith. He must, have, he must have just had really strong, this isn't faith. This isn't blind. This is evidence. And this is now, this again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. So, what is faith? What does it mean to believe? I'm gonna give you a practical definition. This is a definition. This is not the definition. This is a definition based on this story. I say faith is to live each day as if Jesus is who he says he is. Faith is to live each day as if Jesus is who he says he is. That he is more than a teacher. He's more than a nice guy. He's more than a morality and ethics he is God in flesh. That's what he said. And the faith that will change the world is a faith not that always gets its prayers answered, not that has an easy life and no problems, not that has a big house and always gets promoted. The faith that changes the world is a faith that regardless of what I see out there and regardless of what I experience out there, I live each day as if Jesus is who he says he is regardless of what my eyes see. is what some call a faith in spite of. A faith in spite of hardship. A faith in spite of suffering. A faith in spite of, if I can be honest, a faith in spite of unanswered prayers, which is where we all live. Like Francis Collins, how I told you in early, that he found a lady who had this faith in spite of, and it was that faith that was willing to believe and was willing to, to put her trust in who Jesus says he is, regardless of what she may see, that's the kind of faith that changed him. And that's the kind of faith that will change our world as well. Again, not a faith where we get all of our prayers answered. Because just like the lady had no idea her faith, the impact it would have, on a doctor making his rounds in a hospital in North Carolina back in the 1990s or 80s, whatever year it was. You have no idea who today is watching you, is watching you, and is seeing if you truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is. You have no idea the impact that your response to the hardships and the trials and the difficulties and the unanswered prayers, you have no idea what impact that may have on someone else out there. Let's go back to our theme verse right here. Again, these are written, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is who he says he is, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In case you're wondering, the word life, that you may have life, is not talking about just heaven after you die. It's talking about eternal life. And eternal life 
by definition, eternal means no end, but it also means no beginning. So eternal life is a line with two arrows on both sides. So therefore, by definition, eternal life must exist today because if it didn't exist today, then it couldn't be eternal. Just go the logic of that. Just trust me on that one. So when St. John here speaks about life, he's not talking about when you die. He's talking about the life, going back to last week, wedding of Cain of Galilee. He's talking about the new wine that Jesus came to give today. The nobleman. He's talking about the healing that Jesus came to give today. He's talking about a life that he wants for all of us to experience today, which is not a life after you die, which is a life here now, but is not limited by what we see or what we experience to know that there's something more. Faith is to believe who Jesus says is who he says he is regardless of what my eyes see. That means that I believe that I'm never alone. Faith is to believe that you are never alone regardless of how alone you may feel. Faith is to believe that Jesus is who he says he is and he said, I am with you always even to the end of the age, amen. So I am never alone. Faith is to live each day as if Jesus is who he says he is and Jesus said that he's a just God. So I live each day regardless of what my eyes may see in the evil that I see out there in the world and the injustice. I know there is justice in this world and I know there will come a time where justice will prevail. So I don't need to hold on to justice myself. I don't need to be a vigilante for justice. I don't need to get revenge. I can rest assured that I live in a world with a just God. Just because I don't see justice today, I believe Jesus is who he says he is and there will be justice because he's a just God. I also believe that he is who he says he is and he's a loving God. And he tells us, that he is full of mercy and full of compassion, which means no matter how far I've run, no matter how far I've fallen, no matter how far I feel, God is always near. Because he is who he says he is, regardless of what my eyes may see. My hope is for this series would be a similar journey for you, that you too, like St. John says, would believe. Not believe because, because I tell you to believe, not believe because blind, not believe because like it'll make mama happy, not believe because we don't do the crazy doubting stuff. No, no, no. Faith is much, much better than that. Believe because Jesus gave specific signs to show who he is. And there are people like John who witnessed it and documented it so that you would believe and that you would experience it as well. I'm gonna leave you with a short little prayer right here, which is one of the prayers that comes from a saint in the Russian tradition. His name is Saint Philaret, okay? And it's a long prayer, but I took just a little segment. It's actually a prayer that I say every single morning, and it reminds me, it reminds me that Jesus is who he says he is, and my goal of the day is to live each day knowing that. Here's the prayer up on the screen. It's an excerpt from a much longer prayer, but it says this. It says, teach me to treat all that comes to me throughout the day with the peace of soul, with the confidence with the peace of soul, with the firm conviction, your will governs all. And in unforeseen events, let me not forget that all are sent by you. This is a practical way that you can practice living each day as if Jesus is who he says he is. Let me live each day with the confidence, with the trust, like that woman in that hospital in North Carolina, the confidence, the faith, the peace of soul to believe that you are who you say you are. You are in control, not my boss, not my neighbor. Nothing around me is in control that you are in control and to live each day and not forget that everything that comes to me is sent ultimately by you.
Let's stand together for our prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter where we are, we come to you. You are everything for us, Lord. There's no need. There's no request. There's nothing lacking, Lord, that you are not the answer for and that you cannot fill. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would strengthen us in our faith. Help us to believe in you in a true way, that you are who you say you are, and to live that faith every single day. I pray, Lord, for those who are struggling with their faith because of unanswered prayers or because of problems. Lord, we've all been there and we're all there now. But I pray that you would strengthen us to believe in you, Lord, and to trust in you even when we don't see it, but to trust that you are who you say you are and you always will be. We pray this in the name of your Son, with the intercessions and the prayers of all your saints. Hear us as we pray thankfully. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen.